Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am feeling refreshed, but also kind of sleepy. Just that like feeling of coming out of hibernation, it feels like. Okay. (laughs) Um, well, yeah, we're recording this obviously after Christmas, but before New Year's. So it is the week where nothing counts. Nothing counts. Nothing makes sense. Is it daytime? Is it nighttime? Is it Tuesday? Is it Friday? I have no idea. <laughs> I know. I was having my husband. I was like, could you bring the trash down to the road? He's like, why? I was like, because tomorrow's Friday. He's like, mm, nope, that's not right. And I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's weird. And kids are home and like you're it's like the post-Christmas crash, I guess, the post-holiday crash. That is definitely a thing. I have seen people talking about this, about like the ride in the high of Christmas, and then it's kind of like, okay, well, now what? Like now it's all I over. I know. Like, now you're just like, now we're just hanging out. <laughs> yeah. Now it's just the year I'm just supposed to live my life. It's right. so weird. <laughs> you're supposed to get a head start on the new year. Oh, Mandy, I've like turned into a different person probably – I feel like this is my midlife crisis. Like I turned 40 and like I 
think about all these things a lot and like make every day count. It's really weird. I've gotten very positive. I feel like you've been in that for a while, but it's just started happening for me. And it's I'm weird. So, I'm happy for you. I know my perspective. <laughs> I'm like, I'm still very sarcastic and I still will look at the bad in things, but I'm like looking for the good more often. It's weird. I I totally understand what you're saying. I am do I do the same thing now more than I did like five years ago, for example. Yeah. I feel like it has just kind of suddenly come on. But you know what? I feel like that's a great thing because I don't know. Gosh, I feel like times have been tough lately. So I'm, I'm happy True. that you are adopting this new positive outlook <laughs> when it really matters. <laughs> it's taking me years of craziness and crappiness. And I'm like, you know what, now I'm going to be I'm going to get excited about life. And um, now other people true. really look at us like we're insane, because they're like, why are you so happy? I'm like, I don't know, I just am. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm on a lot of vitamins now and drinking right. more water, like all the things they say to make you feel better, e- exercising, eating good, the things you should be doing. Right. And I'm like, why is this working? And it right. is. <laughs> Diet Imagine Coke hasn't that. even done this for me. I know. I hate it. I hate that it's all true, but it really has been. So anyway, happy yeah. to be here. Yes. Yeah, me too. I'm happy that you're here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so uh, we're back. This is going to be our first episode of 2024, which sounds I know. like it doesn't even It's not a real off, year. It doesn't roll off the tongue very easily mm-hmm. just yet uh, and probably won't for like another couple of months. But yeah, so this will be our first new episode and this is definitely an interesting story. I've never heard anything like this. This is like to me a story like the ultimate like how far can you take a lie story. Yes, yes. And like when to bail on the lie. And yes, and knowing when to bail on the lie. But just the whole thing is just so wild that this uh, story got to the point that it did. Totally. Um, Yeah. And that the case actually went on as long as it did. So this one wrapped up kind of recently about a year ago now. So we'll just get right into the story. Great. On Sunday, April 25th, 2010, St. Paul, Minnesota dispatchers received two hang-up phone calls from the same phone number at 6.31 a.m. One minute later, the same number called again, and this time the operator heard a woman's voice saying that somebody was trying to break into her home. The woman said she was in St. Paul, and she started to give her address, but she was only able to say the numbers, not the actual name of the street. After a brief silence, she finally was able to state her whole address, but then the dispatcher heard the distinct sound of a gunshot followed by a man yelling no before the call was disconnected. When the operator tried to dial back the number, they got no answer. But at 6.33 a.m., the same number called back again, only this time there was a man on the other end. The man, Nick Furcus, was highly emotional as he explained that someone had just broken into the home he shared with his wife and shot them both. He gave his address and pleaded for them to send somebody to help. While he was waiting for the first responders to arrive, Nick told the dispatcher that a burglar had come into his home and shot him and his wife. He said that he did not fire back at the assailant. Nick said his wife Heidi wasn't moving or breathing. He was hysterical throughout the call, so the operator just tried to keep him calm while the officers made their way over. The front door was ajar when the officers arrived, and the smell of gunpowder was still lingering in the air. Heidi Furcus was found lying face up in the kitchen with blood on her hair and her face. She had a shotgun wound near the middle of her back, and there was a rag notice near her body. 
Nick was in the kitchen next to Heidi, and he was on the phone with 911. He appeared to have suffered a gunshot wound to his upper left leg, and he, as we said, was highly emotional, really hysterical when the responders arrived. Officers cleared the Fergus home and found no intruder. Nick was taken outside to an ambulance where he was given medical care while the EMTs evaluated Heidi inside. Unfortunately, she was pronounced dead at the scene. An autopsy would later reveal that Heidi died from a gunshot wound in which the pellets had perforated her posterior lateral vertebral column, left ribs, left lung, and anterior ribs. Her spine was severed from this gunshot. She died almost instantly, and her manner of death was ruled a homicide. Nick told the police at the scene that one or two people had broken into his house, so he got his shotgun and tried to escape out the back door with Heidi. As they were running to the garage, Nick said he turned around and the intruder grabbed the shotgun from him and turned it on him and Heidi. He said he didn't know whether the suspect was black or white because they were wearing a hood. Nick was transported to the hospital while officers stayed behind to begin processing the crime scene. Heidi Erickson was born on December 14, 1984, in St. Paul, Minnesota, to her parents, Linda and John. She grew up with two brothers, and she was known for the positivity and the joy that she exuded. Heidi was unapologetically excited about life, and she always saw the best in those around her. She was also known for being goofy and artistic, and she loved spending time outdoors and watching romantic comedies. One of Heidi's hobbies was crafting, and she was someone that loved to make handmade cards with heartfelt messages. She was extremely organized and meticulous, and she even kept a planner so she'd have everything in order. In her freshman year of high school, Heidi crossed paths with Nick Furcus during a youth group meeting at Calvary Church. Both of their families attended church at Calvary, and their friendship grew stronger the more time they spent together doing Bible studies, sports, and social events. They even went on the same week-long mission trip in Minnesota. After high school, Nick pursued a degree at Bethel College with the intention of becoming a youth pastor, but he never completed his studies. Instead, he returned to Calvary Church, where he joined the staff and began working with a youth group. Nick and Heidi officially began dating in 2003 after Heidi graduated from high school. After graduation, Heidi enrolled in a Bible college, which was the University of Northwestern, but after she was there a year, she decided it really wasn't the right fit, and so she dropped out. In 2005, Nick and Heidi got married, and together they assumed leadership roles in the church youth group and guided mission trips within Minnesota, as well as one trip to Jamaica. In the summer of 2007, the couple moved into a house in the 1700 block of Minnehaha Avenue West in St. Paul, Minnesota. For those who lived through the early 2000s, you might recall the housing bubble fiasco, and I very much remember this because I myself fell into this, (laughs) and when Nick and Heidi purchased their house, it was at the height of this, so they paid $215,000, which is about $326,000 today, and so this house was in a quiet and family-oriented neighborhood. Nick started working for his parents' business, installing floors, water heaters, doors, and more, while Heidi took an administrative position at Securian. The couple remained very committed to their faith, and they grew a circle of friends who shared their beliefs. These set of friends, they all called themselves the core. So Heidi and Nick were known for being a sweet and loving couple who really enjoyed being very active in their church. 
Nick was well-respected by his friends, and he was held in high regard in the community, which was something that was very important to him. According to this group of friends, as we said, that are referred to as the core, men in relationships were supposed to lead, and his relationship with Heidi was what some would call traditional, and this meant that Nick handled all the important decisions, including taking care of the couple's finances, and Heidi was fine with this. She was happy with this, and she trusted her husband to take care of things. So looking from the outside, though, it did seem unlikely that this couple would be the target of a violent attack. The shooting at Nick and Heidi's home in 2010 that left Heidi dead was a shock to the local community. Nick was accepted as a victim by Heidi's family and friends who all rallied around him in support. Following the shooting, Nick was taken to the hospital and treated for a gunshot wound to his upper left thigh. The wound was through and through, and other than local soft tissue damage, there really was no sign of significant bleeding or other injury. He was still emotional and crying loudly during his exam at the hospital. From the hospital, Nick gave his account of what happened to the police. He said that he woke up that morning at around 6 and got a glass of water from the upstairs bathroom before he returned to bed. And then about 10 to 15 minutes later, he said he heard the front screen door open and what sounded like somebody attempting to break into their house by fiddling with the doorknob. Nick realized that there was a threat, and he got up and got his hunting shotgun out of the bedroom closet. Normally, he said he would keep this gun down in the basement, but he explained that he recently started keeping it upstairs because he was concerned about corrosion and he also wanted easier access to the gun for self-defense purposes. Nick said that he loaded two rounds into the shotgun, and then he woke Heidi up and told her to dial 911, which she did. Heidi remained calm during the 911 call, and the couple then proceeded downstairs with the intention of exiting through the back door and going into the garage where they would get into their car and drive away. Investigators had assumed that Nick went down the stairs first. Of course, he's already said he's holding the shotgun. But then he tells them that Heidi was actually in the front, and he was just behind her, urging her to move quickly. When they got to the bottom of the stairs, Nick said that the front door swung open, and they came face-to-face with this intruder. Nick was holding the gun in his left hand, despite being a right-handed shooter, and he was holding a pair of his jeans in his right hand. He was unable to close the door on the intruder, and a struggle ensued just a few feet into the doorway. According to Nick, the intruder was a man wearing a hooded sweatshirt with the hood pulled down very low. He may or may not have had on sunglasses, and Nick said he was wearing gloves. Nick said he didn't see any tools in this person's hand. In the midst of the struggle, the intruder managed to gain control of Nick's shotgun, and while Nick was trying to wrestle it from him, he accidentally fired it. Heidi was running towards the back door when the shotgun was discharged, and she was hit in the back. She fell face first while Nick and the intruder continued grappling with the gun, which resulted in the second accidental discharge that wounded Nick's thigh. Nick said the attacker fled the scene without taking anything from the home. When he ran over to Heidi and saw that she was badly hurt, he grabbed her phone and redialed 911. Nick said he then rolled Heidi over to assess her condition, but he saw no signs of life, and he just held her until the paramedics arrived. And we have so much to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. The new year is a great time to jumpstart new habits. 
things like saving money or eating healthier. But what if I told you you could do both of those in one place thanks to Hungry Root? Hungry Root is the incredible meal delivery service that not only allows you to make delicious and inexpensive meals, but you can actually do it very quickly. In fact, that's the whole standard of Hungry Root. Great tasting food that's quick to make and contains whole trusted ingredients. On top of that, Hungry Root takes into account what you want and need in each box. You simply fill out a questionnaire that tells them things about your kitchen, like what appliances you have access to, as well as what allergies may be in your family, or even if you want low-calorie meals or high-protein. There's a ton of options that are great for everyone. Plus, they have incredible add-ons, including things like snacks for the kids, limiting your need to ever go inside a grocery store again. My first box of Hungry Root came with ingredients and directions to make cheesy fajita chicken sandwiches and zesty beef and rainbow veggie rice bowls. And these were delicious. And thanks to the veggies actually being pre-sliced, it didn't take me half the day to make. Add that to the fact that there was no food waste since all the ingredients sent were used in the meals and you really have one happy customer. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Moms and Mysteries listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash moms to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash moms. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. If you haven't made a New Year's resolution, here's one you can actually stick to. 2024 can be the year that you finally stop wearing uncomfortable bras, thanks to Honey Love. Honeylove has somehow managed to create a bra so comfortable, so supportive, even without the dreadful underwire, all while still being so cute. It's a post-Christmas miracle. I've outed myself on the show before as being a 24-7 bra-wearing girly, and that means I need a bra to be comfortable, but honestly, they haven't always been so supportive because, again, the goal was comfort. But with Honeylove's crossover bra, there's zero underwire, so it's already comfortable, but it manages to lift and support, which is not something I was accustomed to before Honeylove. It's normally either support, but uncomfort with wires, or zero support and comfort without. With Honeylove, you can have it all, including a bra that has back-smoothing fabric to prevent bra bulge. They've seriously thought of everything. Plus, they're so cute thanks to the mesh detailing and great colors like my favorite fig, which is a gorgeous deep crimsonish purple. It's muy caliente. But Honey Love doesn't just stop at bras. They have incredibly comfortable shapewear, which seems like an oxymoron. But with Honey Love, it's not, which is why they don't stop there, but also make cute and comfortable tanks as well as leggings. Treat yourself to the best brows and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash moms20. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com slash moms20. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Start the new year with confidence, thanks to Honey Love. And now, back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking a little about the history of Nick and Heidi Furcus, how they got together, kind of the life they're living at this point, and Nick's side of events about what happened the morning that Heidi was murdered. The investigator who took Nick's statement later testified that he first thought that Nick was a victim, but by the end of the interview, he felt like he was talking to a suspect. The vague description of a complete stranger breaking into his home and wrestling him over a gun, which resulted in his wife's death really didn't add up. There were so many things that were suspicious that it made it hard to believe Nick's story was 100% true. Nick was the only person with Heidi when police arrived, and his own shotgun was the murder weapon. There was also no evidence of a break-in and no signs of any struggle, and nothing was actually taken behind by this alleged intruder. Additionally, Heidi was shot directly in the back while Nick managed to get away with just a superficial wound to his thigh. 
Due to all this, Nick started being viewed as a suspect rather than a victim. He was released from the hospital after about three hours, and he was immediately taken to the police station for further questioning. Nick went over the events of that morning and said that the night before, he and Heidi had watched a movie and had a glass of wine together. The couple went to bed around midnight, and he didn't wake up until about 6.10 to 6.15 when he said he heard the screen door open and someone messing with the doorknob. Nick said that despite normally being very vigilant about locking the deadbolt, he didn't believe it had been locked that night. Nick said the couple had a pre-discussed emergency plan for escaping the house, but that Heidi stopped next to the front door to grab her wallet, which was on a table near the front door. And at that same moment, the door opened and the intruder entered the house. Officers asked whether Nick and Heidi had any marital problems, but Nick said they were still best friends and only had the normal stresses, such as financial ones. Nick admitted that they were behind on some of their bills, and there had been some fraudulent activity on their bank account. He said Heidi went shopping at Mall of America the day before her murder, but she was really on a tight budget, so he gave her $30 to $40 in cash to spend. This story would eventually turn out to be a lie, no real clue why he even told them that as the story goes on. I don't know right. why he even tried to say that that was what she did. Uh, Nick also told investigators that he and Heidi had been working on their budget that night before the shootings actually took place. And then after that, they watched the Avatar movie. He said neither he nor Heidi had any life insurance policies. But then Nick drops this really interesting bombshell. He tells the officers that the couple's home had actually been foreclosed on, and it wasn't like this was a new thing, Melissa. They were supposed to be moving out the very next day. (sighs) This is where, like, as we go through these stories and you think, you know, what could have been going on in the background when you find out that this very long process is, like, coming to an end the next day, that's wild. Yeah. So... Nick explains to the police that they didn't tell any of their friends or family about all of this. They were keeping it private, also understandable, but allegedly they had plans to pack up the house on the 25th or 26th of April. Police did see foreclosure documents in a folder in the house, but they didn't see a single indication that the couple was actually planning to vacate the home in the next 24 hours, as Nick said. There were a few boxes in the basement and there were some things like stored in Rubbermaid bins like we all have in our garages and attics, uh, but it wasn't enough to make it look like somebody was actually in the middle of moving out of the house. So Nick tells authorities that the foreclosure had been a private struggle for the couple and they didn't even know where they were planning on moving yet. He said the plan was to move out as much of their stuff as they could and talk to their parents about it the next day. Nick was asked to explain why he didn't just sit at the top of the stairs with a shotgun if he thought someone was coming through the front door. Why on earth would you go downstairs putting yourself closer to this threat? But Nick said he didn't want to have to shoot anyone because he's a compassionate person and not the type to actually pull the trigger. So his first choice would be just to escape. And so although police were suspicious of him, they let Nick go after the interview while they continued to investigate. They ended up releasing a description of the intruder to the public that was based on Nick's recollection, but no solid leads came in. Heidi's friends and family rallied around Nick to support him in the wake of Heidi's death. Nick was seen crying, and he appeared to be a grieving spouse according to everyone around him. He wrote and posted a eulogy on Facebook where he talked about his grief and compared it to homesickness. 
He said there were days where he was at work and he felt homesick, but not for his house, but to be where Heidi was, which in the Christian faith, that's not a an uncommon thing to be said at right. all, that you're homesick for heaven. I mean, but you also, yeah, and you just, you kind of understand, and that also makes sense, right, for a spouse who's totally. lost their spouse. Like, I feel like you can relate to that feeling of being, like, homesick for a person. Like, you just want to yeah, be where yeah. this person is, you know. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. But there were other times that Nick didn't seem quite so bereaved. One night, shortly after the shooting, some of the couple's friends from their core group stopped by the Fergus home to offer their condolences to Nick. One woman named Sarah saw that Nick was laughing and joking around with one of the husbands from the group, and Nick told her that if he was laughing and joking, it was only because he was in shock over what happened. In another strange incident, on the day after Heidi was killed, Nick and his parents went over to Heidi's parents' home. Nick told them that he had informed the police that he and Heidi were supposed to be moving out of their house the next day, something Heidi's parents hadn't heard about until that very moment. Heidi's father thought that the police might try to use this detail to assign a motive of sorts to the killing, but since he believed Nick's side of the story, he tried to remain positive and encouraging and told Nick that police should be able to pull fingerprints from the gun. That's when Nick immediately says, oh, by the way, the intruder was wearing gloves, and he basically told him, I also don't think they're ever going to find this guy. Hmm. So soon after his initial interviews with the police, Nick ended up hiring an attorney and a private investigator. His attorney advised him, of course, as attorneys do, to stop speaking to the police altogether. And Nick took his attorney's advice and stopped speaking to the police. So for two weeks, Nick ignored requests to even view a photo lineup of the alleged intruder. Eventually, the police asked Nick to come down and help them put together a sketch of the intruder, But his attorney said no because he thought that the police would use this opportunity to try and question Nick. So instead, they hired their own sketch artist who created uh, a sketch of the intruder. And then that sketch was given to the police on May 11th, along with a new detail from Nick. At this point, he is now adding that he believed the intruder was between 40 to 60 years old. So we've gone from in the very beginning, he's like... I didn't see anything about this person. Like, I couldn't even tell you if they were black or white or what because they had a hood on. So if you can't tell their race, I would love to know how he suddenly was able to nail down an age range. I mean, all of it. Even, like, down to him saying the the, was he wearing sunglasses or not. Like, that is such a weird – that's – I don't know. All of this is so – was it one person or two? There's a lot of specifics that he's, like, bringing in now that it could help his narrative, it feels like. Definitely. So the sketch that they created was released to the public, but no leads came in. A few years later, a woman went to the police and said that she recognized the man from the sketch. But when the police looked into the man that she thought it could be, they learned that he was already in jail on the day of Heidi's murder. So he definitely couldn't have been involved in this crime. An investigation into Nick and Heidi's financial situation revealed that Nick was right when he said the couple really had no significant marital issues on paper. There was no evidence that pointed to an affair. And according to many sources, Nick really was a devoted husband who shared a very loving bond with Heidi. It was learned that Heidi did have a life insurance policy that was valued at about $28,000, which Nick actually received the payout of and then transferred to Heidi's parents. So the biggest struggle, though, um, that seemed to be facing Heidi and Nick were these financial difficulties. And 
when I say that these are struggles facing the couple, what I really mean is that these are struggles Nick is facing behind Heidi's back because she absolutely was not aware that they were having any financial troubles. As we said before, this couple had, you know, a very traditional marriage and Heidi just didn't have a role in managing the household money. Her brother told NBC News that Heidi fully trusted Nick and just generally didn't have any influence over financial matters and didn't have a lot of knowledge of them. Although she was aware of some of the issues with money, she just relied on Nick to figure them out. So how bad was it? Well, it turned out that the couple's bank account was overdrawn by $434.93, and the account was eventually closed by the bank on January 8th, 2010. So this is just a few months before all of this is going down. At the time Heidi was killed, the couple owed the bank a little over $1,700, and they had significant credit card debt to the tune of $17,000. A closer look into the charges on that card showed that Nick was responsible for 2.4 times more of the charges than Heidi was over the year period from 2008 to 2009. Emails between the couple showed that Heidi had asked Nick to respond to multiple calls that she was getting from these bill collectors, and they had called her many times during March and April of 2010. So Nick would reply to these emails and he would assure Heidi that he was taking care of everything and he even claimed he was in touch with the bank and that they were doing an audit on their account because of some alleged fraud. Nick actually said that a bank teller was stealing his paychecks. That's such a wild lie and one that could be figured out so quickly. Like for that to be the way you're going is wild. Right. So obviously goes without saying there was no audit being conducted on their account there was no fraud on the account all of that was completely made up by nick you know for just to put heidi off of questioning him about why these bill collectors are calling and all this stuff is going on so he's saying like actually by the way i forgot to mention this to you but we're being like you know audited can you believe we're being (laughs) stolen from yeah, yeah so very very unlikely Right. The first person I've had my card stolen plenty of times. I think most people have, you know, using it at gas stations or whatever. After I get the call saying your number's, you know, been used or realize that it has the first person I call is my husband to say, right. oh my gosh, our card's being used. I'm going right. to have to use your card or whatever, you know, like, but it's a conversation you absolutely have with that Definitely. person. They would know. And I feel like even if you're operating in a relationship where one person is doing more of the financial like management things, like I still think in that case, most of the time, like the person managing the money is going to mention if something big like that is going on. They're not just going to like completely keep it in the dark. Like it's not like a, I I don't know. I just find it hard to believe that he wouldn't I pay all of our bills. I'm in charge of all of that. Like it just is default to me because I remember and I do it. And yeah, I wouldn't think to be like, by the way, I, I forgot to tell you, somebody's right? <laughs> stealing your paychecks. Silly right. me. Yeah, that's wild. But also she trusts her husband. Like he's he's right. been in charge of this. So of course she's just going to trust him. Through this investigation, police also found out the details about this foreclosure that was going on in the Fergus home. So the couple bought the house in August of 2007 for $215,000. They actually used two separate mortgages to buy the house. So the primary mortgage had a $1,300 monthly payment, and the second mortgage was around $250 a month. The last payments made on either mortgage was actually in September of 2008, so just a little over a year after they bought it. 
It's important to note again that Nick handles all these finances without Heidi's input, so he was the one responsible for making these mortgage payments and therefore also responsible for not making the mortgage payments. So investigators figured out pretty quickly that Heidi most likely knew nothing about this foreclosure. So at some point, Nick was actually offered the opportunity to restructure the mortgage, but he declined, which investigators believe was because that meant he would have to involve Heidi in the process, which would mean that she found out that he wasn't paying. But he had this opportunity to come clean before to fix it and make it right. And it would be embarrassing, but you could at least move to. move from there. Yeah, right. So Nick was served with foreclosure documents on April 30th, 2009, and on June 4th, the house was actually sold at a sheriff's auction. The foreclosure documents were actually found in Nick's vehicle after Heidi was shot. So the law firm that was handling the foreclosure and eviction had no documents that were signed by Heidi, and no representative had actually ever spoken to her. All contact regarding these matters were with Nick. So on January 29th, 2010, Nick was contacted by the law firm and offered $4,000 to vacate the house by February 18th, or they would give him $2,500 to leave by March 20th. Nick also didn't accept these offers, which investigators think was another attempt to hide this foreclosure from Heidi. If they accepted the money to move out sooner, Heidi would have to sign the paperwork too. So the eviction process was initiated on February 12th with a hearing on March 8th. Nick was the only one to attend this hearing. He said that Heidi was at work. He actually signed the agreement to vacate the house by March 22nd. On March 10th, Heidi and Nick toured two apartments in Minneapolis. One had a monthly rent of $1,454 and the other was $2,200, which is also wild because their mortgage, what was it, like under $1,500 for the two mortgages before. So they're like ready to, you know, he's looking at things that are even more than that. And I'm sorry, this is in 2010. Like if you tell me that you're you're looking at an apartment and it's going to cost $2,200 today, I'd be like, yeah, I believe that because that's the price of renting apartments right now. But in 2010, that was not the price of renting apartments. So you know, they're looking at luxury apartments if it's costing this much money. Like, that yeah, if we compare it to the mortgage, because like, I don't know, Minneapolis, like we obviously don't know that. The area, right, the area. exactly. But if you're comparing it to the the mortgage, yeah, this seems like a difference to where they were living. Right. Like, why would you be going, why would he know all this? Right. Even if he's trying to hide it and, and go in that direction, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So Heidi spoke to the agent and basically said, you know, we want to sell our house and move into the city, but she doesn't even realize that at this time, her house has already been sold from beneath her. It was sold at auction. So there was no house to even sell. So Heidi did tell her family that she wanted to downsize to an apartment so that they could save money to buy another house in the future. And eventually they wanted to raise a family. So that was kind of like the next steps in doing that. When Heidi mentioned these ideas to her family, though, it didn't seem like there was an urgency, like if your house was being foreclosed on, she was just kind of like in the future, we're thinking about doing these things, you know, maybe asking for their input or whatever. So the March 22nd deadline to vacate the home came and went, and when the couple was still living there, the law firm sent a letter to Nick where they informed him of a lockout date of April 9th, which is, you know, saying, hey, April 9th, congratulations, we're changing the locks, you cannot come back in, like, it's over for you on April 9th. like, we've given you two options, like, to, like, nicely choose the date that you can move out, and, like, now you don't get a choice, like, we're coming to to kick you out. Offered you money to help get you out, Yeah. (laughs) 
So on April 6th, just three days before, he tells the law firm that his grandmother is in hospice and her death is imminent. He said he's planning for her funeral and that they just needed a few extra weeks to vacate the house. So the law firm was kind enough to reschedule the lockout for noon, Monday, April 26th. Side note here, there's actually no evidence that either one of Nick's grandmas was sick in 2010. They both ended up living throughout that entire year. That's so wild. Like, you always hear that, like, it's usually like teenagers or something, right? And they'll be like, oh, my grandma is sick or my grandma died. Like, that's like a popular one to say, like, to use or whatever. I'm like, that's such a horrible, like, excuse to say, like, to try to use in your lie to say, like, my grandmother is in hospice. Her death is imminent. Like, why would you say that about your grandmother who's not sick? I don't know. I never understand why people say stuff like that. Like, uh, please, Mm-mm, I don't ever want to be a grandma for no, that reason. I know. I know. That's terrible. So it just so happened that the insurance agent that Heidi and Nick were using for their homeowner's insurance, car insurance, all of that was a longtime friend of Heidi's parents. And they said that Heidi's car insurance policy was always promptly paid right up until the day that she married Nick. And after the marriage, the agent started communicating with Nick about all the insurance matters. So when the foreclosure happened, the insurance company canceled the homeowner's insurance policy, and the agent sent Nick a cancellation notice, as well as spoke to him over the phone about it. Nick told the insurance agent that the foreclosure happened because a bank teller was stealing his paychecks. Obviously, the insurance agent doesn't believe any of this. He explains to Nick that, you know, like, hey, buddy, foreclosure is actually a really long process. So it's not like you have been blindsided by this whole thing. So he didn't really press Nick for details. Of course, he assumes this is probably a really embarrassing topic for Nick to discuss, and he just kind of like leaves it alone. The agent also received a cancellation notice for the insurance on both Heidi and Nick's vehicles, and he did send a letter out about those two, but he never did follow up with conversation over the phone about it or anything. He actually assumed the couple had switched insurance agents, which I would say is probably like not a crazy assumption. Right, um, yeah. Because I would assume like it was an embarrassing situation. I'd be like, wow, like all of our everything got canceled because we weren't paying like this is embarrassing. I don't and you know, my wife's family, right? Like you're never going to hear from us again. So (laughs) um, so he was just thinking like, probably not going to hear from Nick uh, at all at this point. So none of Heidi's friends or family members that spoke with investigators ever mentioned anything about the foreclosure. And when they found out that that was a thing that was part of the equation, they were genuinely surprised. Heidi had always been the type of person who really wore her heart on her sleeve. You know, she didn't keep secrets. She was very open, especially if she needed help or was having struggles. She would have told her parents if being evicted from her home was on the table. And, you know, in the past, she had, you know, felt comfortable enough to ask her parents for help, ask her mom for help. And, you know, her family just felt that, like, something this big, if she was going through, like, she would have turned to her family and, like, you know, asked for their help. So text messages between Heidi and Nick showed no evidence that Heidi knew anything that was going on with the home or the foreclosure or the eviction. They never discussed or mentioned any of these problems through text messages or talked about moving anytime soon. The only sign that Heidi knew something might be up with their financial situation was that she had mentioned in those emails about bill collectors calling her and wanting Nick to kind of call them back and get them off her back. So as far as how Heidi behaved and the way she was speaking about her home, it 
really didn't seem like she had any idea there was a foreclosure that was happening. She had spent time making improvements to the home in the months leading up to her death, things like repainting or installing closet organizers and even putting new carpet on the stairs, not things you'd be doing if you know your house has already been sold at auction and you were being evicted. The last thing you do is put upgrades (laughs) to your home. No. So on the same day the eviction process actually began, which is February 12th, Heidi and Nick actually left for a five-day trip to Hawaii, and this trip cost them a total of $3,535. Also, one of those airline tickets was around $750, and it was actually bought by Nick's father. So about a month later, on March 11th, Heidi sent an email to a friend where she said she wished that they weren't tied down to this home because she wishes that they could move somewhere fun. And further proof that Heidi had no clue what was going on with the house was that in the spring of that year, Heidi wanted to set up a meeting with a realtor about doing a short sale on the home. And obviously that wouldn't be possible since the house had already been sold. So emails from Heidi to Nick in April showed that she had asked him multiple times about contacting their realtor, who also happened to be a friend from church, and Nick would just respond and say, you know, hey, I'm already in touch with the realtor. On April 23rd, Heidi sent Nick an email asking about it again, and Nick wrote back that the realtor was ready to meet when they were ready. He said Monday should be a good day for them to meet. Monday, conveniently, would be April 26th, which was the day they were to be evicted. So when police interviewed the realtor, they found out that he hadn't been in contact with Nick at all in over a year and that they had zero meetings scheduled in April. What's so wild to me is that, like, he is literally just trying to buy himself time down to the minute. Like, it's like, come on, buddy. Like, you only got, like, three days to figure this out. And then what are you going to do on Monday? You know, that's kind of where it's like you see where this is, like, building and building and building and escalating. And it's like he keeps putting it off to the last second. He knows – they're coming to change the locks on Monday. Like whether he can like lie his to his wife or not, like he can't lie his way out of people actually coming to the house on Monday. So it's like at this point, why are you even still trying to like keep this up? It's not like, I mean, uh, was he thinking he was just going to win the lottery one day and could like, but even then it's, over it's over they're just allowing you a few more days in this home that they own now right you don't own this house so it doesn't make any sense why you're pushing it and making all this up it's it's right it's it is terrible there were so many other signs that heidi was unaware of the situation she and nick were in on april 9th which would have been the original lockout day if nick hadn't bought more time with the whole hospice story on that day, Heidi went shopping with her mom, and her mom later said that she showed no signs of distress and didn't mention anything about an impending eviction, you know, didn't say like, hey, we were actually supposed to be out of our house today, but thankfully they gave us two more weeks. No mention of anything like that. There were text messages that also showed that Heidi was making plans for Sunday, April 25th. She was going to go to church, have lunch, and then get a pedicure with a friend. And that seems kind of like a strange day to plan for yourself given this April 26th move-out date. Yeah. So additionally, Heidi agreed to help another friend move on April 25th. She said, yeah, I'll help you move. Didn't say anything like, actually, I can't because I'm packing my own house. Right. Right. Didn't mention anything about that. She was also out shopping at Mall of America on the Saturday before her death and even spent $218 that day while she was out shopping for a dress to wear to a friend's wedding that was happening in the fall. And she also didn't appear to be concerned about finances that day. 
Lastly, it was learned that Heidi was scheduled to work on April 26th, and she did not request the day off like you would expect someone to do if they were being evicted from their home that day. She also organized a badminton party that was supposed to be at her home for the week after they were supposed to be locked out. All of these things indicated to police that the foreclosure and eviction were kept a total secret from Heidi. Investigators ended up finding Nick's journal, and they found a letter that Nick wrote to Heidi but apparently never gave to her. It didn't have a date on it, but in the letter, Nick expressed his remorse for all the problems in their relationship, and he acknowledged that he was the primary source of all these issues. He talked about reading a book called Fighting for Your Marriage, which he said he found very helpful. He said he read about 100 pages of it, and he promised her in this letter that he was going to finish this book. He apologized for the way he handled conflict within their relationship and apologized for his shortcomings with demonstrating his love to Heidi, and he promised to work hard to rebuild and maintain her trust. He said he felt broken and that he prayed for God to restore their friendship and their marriage and said he desperately wanted to be forgiven and to begin healing and moving forward together using their faith to strengthen them. Despite all this evidence that pointed to Nick's lies, by omission and otherwise, police still did not have enough to charge him with murder, so the investigation continued. A few months later in July, Nick sent a message out to the Corps and was asking them for prayers as he was preparing to meet with Heidi's family the next day to give them more details about what happened on the morning of her death. He said in this message that he wanted nothing more than to still be a part of Heidi's family, and he just really needed them to know that all he ever wanted was to protect Heidi and to provide her with a beautiful life. In August, Nick sent another message to the Corps requesting prayers again, and this time he said he was about to have a big meeting with his legal team the next day. So after a year had passed since Heidi was killed, Nick actually got married to a woman named Rachel. Rachel was actually the sister of one of Nick's friends from this core group. She actually had moved in with her sister, Sarah, in the summer of 2010 and met Nick through this friend group, and eventually the two began dating. They moved into a home that was bought by Nick's parents, and they went on to have three children, one in 2013, one in 2015, and one in 2016. Interestingly enough, but not all that surprisingly, trouble arose in the marriage when Rachel found out about financial problems Nick was hiding from her. She actually filed for divorce in August of 2016 and shared custody of their kids with Nick. In May of 2019, this is over nine years after Heidi was shot, her story got some new attention when the Pioneer Press published a lengthy article about her murder and the fact that it was still unsolved. So for the first time ever, the media published what Nick had said to the 911 operator and the information about the secret foreclosure was actually made public. So in October of 2019, Detective Nicole Sipes took over. She later told 48 Hours that the story never felt right to her and it really never made any sense. So after reviewing the whole case file and listening to the 911 calls, she began working on the case with the FBI and Ramsey County prosecutors. Like the first investigators, Detective Sipes also felt that Nick had deliberately hid the foreclosure and the financial problems from Heidi, and she believed that Nick just couldn't come clean about it due to feelings of shame and embarrassment. The FBI did an enhancement of the 911 calls from the Fergus home and found that no struggle could be heard in the background, and Heidi never said anything that would indicate that an intruder was in the home. However, during Nick's call, you can clearly hear the police arriving on the scene and things happening in the background. 
So this suggests that when Heidi made this first call, there was no one else in the house besides herself and Nick. The FBI also analyzed ballistics. Swaps from Nick's gun showed no unidentified DNA profiles or fingerprints. This also includes the trigger. It's, of course, strange that there would be no DNA or fingerprints on the trigger since Nick himself admitted to accidentally discharging the gun, so at least his should have been there. It was theorized, though, that the rag that was found near Heidi's body could have been used to quickly wipe the gun down, but Nick's fingerprints were found on the safety of this gun. Swabs taken from the entry door had insufficient genetic information, but only Heidi and Nick's fingerprints were found. Additionally, the FBI put together a virtual model of the Fergus home to prove that the shots were most likely intentional and not accidental discharge. Trajectory analysis of the bullet suggested that the shooter was 3 to 10 feet away, likely closer to 3 feet away, and that it was a straight shot which is consistent with aiming and firing. They believed that Nick had braced himself against the front door, put the gun down on his thigh, and then pulled the trigger. An experienced locksmith was asked to take a look at some of the evidence because he had seen the aftermath of many burglaries and what this kind of damage would do to doors and door frames, you know, that looked like forced entry. In this case, he said there's no damage to the deadbolt or the nod like there would be if someone was breaking in. And we still have more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We talk a lot on our show about listening to your gut, whether it's something in the world of true crime or even just in your day-to-day life. And there's a good reason to listen to your gut. After all, your whole body's health really starts there, and that's why we want to share Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. I honestly never thought about my gut health before the past few years, and that's because I didn't have to. But now, I really don't have a choice but to, and that's because I'm now much more sensitive to foods I eat and can go from enjoying chips and queso to feeling bloated and incredibly uncomfortable. But thanks to Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic, I take it in the morning and I'm able to go about my day while Seed helps support healthy gut immune function and promotes gut ease. So to be quite honest, I had never really heard of probiotics until I was a parent and the doctor actually suggested it for my son. Having the right probiotic can really be a game changer for kids and adults and that's what Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic has been for me. It's a broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic that's formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole-body benefits, which goes beyond gut health to things like promoting smooth, clear, and healthy skin and supporting your body's ability to break down fats and lipids. Listen to your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash moms and use code 25moms to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash moms, code 25moms. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery 
delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes... Not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about how the case of Heidi Furcus has now gotten a new set of eyes on it. It's been nine years since she was shot. And finally, there is some renewed interest in the case. And they have Detective Nicole Sipes leading up the investigation. She thinks everything sounds a little bit fishy. She also agrees with the original investigators that this foreclosure and eviction that was happening at the same time as Heidi's murder was likely a secret from her. And they're kind of just trying to figure out where Nick fits into all of this. At this time, Nick has been remarried to another woman named Rachel and has had three children. And Rachel has now divorced Nick as well after finding out about financial struggles that they have been having. So very similar to kind of what was going on in his marriage with Heidi. So when Detective Sipes finds out about this um, and finds out that he has now gotten divorced from his second wife, Rachel, she decided to interview Rachel. And she learned that Nick had not been paying their bills for quite some time and had been keeping it a secret from her. Rachel said that she and Nick had an arrangement where they would pay their mortgage amount to Nick's parents. As we said before, Nick's parents bought them the home. So she said they would pay the mortgage amount to Nick's parents. And then Nick was responsible for taking care of the property taxes by paying them directly to the county. So one day, Rachel is doing what 
moms and wives do, cleaning up, I assume, and finds in Nick's sock drawer a letter. And this letter is talking about how they are delinquent on their property taxes and their home is now in danger of being foreclosed on. Again, I'm not sure because I thankfully I'm able to pay my property taxes. I don't know how long you can get away with it. Like, is it like if you don't do it one year, do they come after you? I feel like it takes a little longer than one year before they're like going to foreclose your home. So she sees this letter and, you know, for the first time realizes that they have a problem and their home is in danger of being taken from them. So immediately as anyone would, because as we said, Rachel was a friend of the core or a sister of someone in the core. So she immediately thinks of Heidi and what happened yeah. in in the case of Heidi's death. And so she confronts Nick and records the conversations and later handed those conversations over to Detective Sipes. So in one part of a recording, Rachel is heard saying, Quote, the fact that you're lying was so easy for you to do in front of me over and over and over makes me think, she kind of trails off and Nick jumps in and says that I could murder my wife. And Rachel just says, yes. Like, that's exactly what I was thinking, actually. That audio (laughs) is wild. He's like saying like, is that what you mean? Like, he's spilling it out there for her. Like, yeah, yeah, no guessing. So at this point, Detective Sipes feels there's finally enough to charge Nick with Heidi's murder. Authorities met with Heidi's parents to inform them that, you know, they were going to go forward with bringing charges. And the final theory that they had come up with was that Nick hid the foreclosure and eviction from Heidi. And then as the date of this eviction was approaching, he starts to panic. This foreclosure was going to reveal everything about who Nick really was, which was just a man who portrayed himself as an accomplished, capable, you know, church-going man, when in reality, he was squandering the couple's money and losing their home. And they said he just couldn't bear to be exposed for all of this. Investigators attempted to speak with Nick early in May of 2021, but he said no thanks, declined to give an interview. And on May 19th, he was arrested by the SWAT team. He was charged with one count of intentional murder in the second degree and was given a bond of $1 million, which he somehow managed to post the next day. We aren't really sure how. His parents did have a business, so it's possible they had the money and used it to help him. We don't know where he got a million dollars from. Which is also wild. Like, it feels like if you were in trouble, your parents maybe could have been the ones to help bail you out. So it just, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. So Heidi's family, of course, is, you know, was grateful for all the hard work that it took to kind of get anywhere with the case and get some answers. As we've said, it's been like almost 10 years at this point. They just wanted to have justice for Heidi, and they truly just want to know what happened. On September 1st, Nick was indicted by a grand jury on one count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, and he pleaded not guilty. So finally, nearly 13 years after Heidi was shot and killed, Nick's trial for her murder began on January 27th, 2023. So the big questions in this case were, first of all, did Heidi know about this foreclosure and eviction? And also, was there ever really an intruder? It was already undisputable that Heidi was killed with Nick's gun and that he was the one holding it. But did he mean to do it? Or was it, you know, this really tragic accident? During opening statements, prosecutors alleged that Nick's actions were driven by shame and fear and that he had betrayed his wife's trust in his ability to manage their finances and safety. 
They said that Heidi, who, again, was completely unaware of the foreclosure, had been making improvements to the house up to the day before her murder. And despite being a very organized person, she hadn't packed a single thing in the house as if she was moving out. They said that Nick's desperation and the reality of the situation led to his conclusion that murdering Heidi was a better way out than telling her the truth about what was going on. Prosecutors also went over the things that Nick did to cover up his crime, things like shooting himself in the thigh, staging a robbery, and calling 911. But when officers arrived, there was no signs of a burglary and not a single sign of a struggle inside the house. The jury was also shown a 3D model of the Fergus home that the FBI had created to show them exactly where this alleged struggle took place. They also had an animation of the crime to show that what Nick was claiming just wasn't possible. They also pointed out discrepancies in Nick's story about the intruder himself. At first, he says he didn't get a good look, but then he remembers enough to help police make a sketch of this man. Finally, they said it was possible that Nick intended to take his own life that day as well, but then he changed his mind. Nick's defense painted him as an affectionate, doting husband whose love for Heidi was evident to all who knew him. They insisted that Heidi knew about the foreclosure and mentioned how she'd been involved in shopping for apartments and making future plans. That one's wild to me because if they are talking like in the future, we want to move and she's like, okay, let's go look at some different things to see what's out there, what's on the market. Like, that's just a crazy stretch to be like, yeah, she knew because they looked at stuff. Yeah, because that doesn't mean anything because how... I mean, I feel like that's a common thing, right? That you're like, let's just go out and take a look, you know? Absolutely. You're just like, I want to see what's out. Is right. is there something better than what we have right now? Or does it make more sense to stay where we are? That's not a crazy thing. So according to the defense, the couple had decided together to stop making their mortgage payments in 2008 due to financial strain, but they kept this decision confidential and didn't talk about it with family or friends. They also questioned how Heidi would be unaware when there had been letters about their mortgage coming into the house, as well as eviction notices on their front door. The defense explains the lack of action when it came to packing the house and preparing to vacate to the couple being in denial about the fact that this was all happening. They alleged that the moving boxes in the basement were proof that the couple was working towards moving out. According to Nick's lawyers, it wouldn't make any sense for Nick to kill Heidi rather than telling her the truth because he would know that their financial troubles would come to light in the wake of Heidi's death. Personally, I don't necessarily agree with this. I think that he assumed this intruder story was just going to go over so well that nobody was going to like dig into his finances. You know, if he's thinking like, oh, if I tell them there was an intruder, if they believe that story, then what reason would they have to dig into me and my finances? Mm -hmm. So he's thinking like no one's going to find out about this. Although I do feel like the police, like, e- even if it was innocent and you were being evicted at, from your house the next day, like, the police are still going to find out about that because it's – they're in contact with you from – Right, what, when yeah. they come tomorrow and see, oh, you don't live here anymore? Right, yeah, exactly. There's, <laughs> there's there's more questions. Exactly. So the defense said that Nick's account of what happened was 100% the truth and that he was faced with a life or death struggle that unfortunately resulted in Heidi accidentally being shot in the back and Nick being shot in the thigh. They claim that Nick couldn't have staged the scene so fast, although I don't know that it was even that fast, to be honest with you, but it also doesn't like discredit that he could have staged the scene before he even woke Heidi up and, you know, did this whole let's go pretend there's an intruder thing. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. He was home all night long. Yeah. Um, so they said that the prosecution's theory was not supported by any evidence and that it was entirely possible Nick could have struggled with an intruder without knocking over the table that was right there in the entryway or disturbing anything at all in the house. 
Yeah. They're supposedly wrestling over a shotgun and they're saying like, it's possible that they didn't make any mess at all or disturb anything inside the house. So they explain that the lack of DNA by the intruder can be explained because the intruder had gloves on and they were also in the house for a very short amount of time. So that's a wild thing to be like, they weren't there long enough to leave anything, but they were there. So they didn't leave anything just because they were there for like one minute. That's not how it works. Nick did not testify in his own defense. On February 10th, 2023, the jury deliberated for four hours before finding Nick guilty of first-degree murder and second-degree murder. Heidi's friends and family shared their thoughts after the trial, and one of her childhood friends said that it was a relief that it was over, and now they could celebrate Heidi and her memory. Nick was given the opportunity to speak, and he maintained his innocence and insisted that Heidi was killed by an intruder. He said that his body might be condemned to serve for another man's crime, but his soul was free. Nick was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He, of course, has filed for an appeal, and his family is 100% behind him with their support. They released a statement saying they believed that Nick had been wrongfully convicted and fully believed that he did not kill his wife. However, while his appeal is pending, Nick is incarcerated at Minnesota Correctional Facility in Rush City. And we will definitely be keeping an eye uh, for updates on how things shake out with his appeal. Yeah. Okay, this story is so wild because it just seems like... It's it's really sad. Like, it's really, really terrible and sad. But it's just wild. Like we said in the beginning about how far do you take a lie? Like, you just... It's one of those things where it's like a little lie starts snowballing and like you keep digging and digging and digging and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and then... The ways that you can get out of it, like, you just have to come clean. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't continue to lie your way out of it anymore. Like I said, he was really going right up into the second that they were supposed to be evicted and, like, still trying to come up with, like, putting it off and putting it off and coming down to the minute that he could not put it off anymore. And the other thing we talked about off mic before this, because I just wanted some clarification because I didn't see anything about this, is, like, what was he spending the money on? It's not like we – Yeah, it's not like, oh, they uncovered a secret gambling habit or they uncovered a love of, you know, sex workers or whatever. Nothing like that. He was spending twice as much as her, so it still wasn't even that great. You know, if they said like 10 times more than her, okay. But twice as much really isn't that much. If he's the one in charge of finances, maybe he does the grocery shopping. Who knows, you know? It does make me wonder if it wasn't just like a lot of frivolous things. Like, you know, even when they mentioned the Hawaiian vacation – It makes me wonder if he was just not like, I mean, I don't know, because clearly, like, like you said, even if Heidi doesn't know that you're being evicted and foreclosed on, he does know that. So like, why would he plan a whole trip to Hawaii the same like week that you're supposed like the same month that you're supposed to be getting evicted from your home that was foreclosed on and you don't know where you're going to move to? Like, who spends $3,000 on a Hawaiian vacation in that moment? Like, even if your wife doesn't know what's going on. For you, like, don't you need that money to, like, figure out where you're going to go? Or, you know, so to me, it just seems like with purchases like that, it's like, yeah, you wouldn't really have anything to, like, show for it. But, like, I I just feel like it was probably all just, like, silly stuff. And, like, who knows, you know? And, of course, Heidi doesn't know that they have any problems and just thinks, like, oh, this is great. We can take vacations. And, you know, it's really, really sad. The whole thing is really sad. Yeah. I give a lot of credit to his second wife for, like – being willing to, you know, record him and put herself in that situation and 
all that, like she was already out. She didn't have to do that. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, oh man, just hard. It's yeah. one that you'll never understand. We'll just yeah. never, ever understand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Melissa, are you ready to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go? I am. So holidays over done. But it is a little cold here. We're a little rainy, cold. We didn't even talk about the weather, but it is a little chilly. There's a chill to the air. And it's officially winter, Mandy. And I feel like we may have done this before, but I don't remember it. So therefore, I don't care. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I was just going to ask you some fun facts about winter and see what you knew, because some of them I was actually surprised about. And I have some options and choices for you. So... What months are considered winter in the Southern Hemisphere? June to September, January to April, May to August. May to August. June to September, I mean, it's very close. But like, also, I want to move to the Southern Hemisphere from June to September, the freaking hottest fire months here. I have discussed this with like some of our dear listeners who live in Australia where the seasons are like totally backwards and like... They don't understand like Christmas and Santa and all that and winter and like being snowy like in December mm-hmm. because it's like summertime there in December. Right. So that's why I was like, well, what is like Santa like where? Santa's on a surfboard, isn't he? Is he? That's I, I said. I was like, I don't know. But no, they still have like the image of Santa in like the snowsuit and everything. But I'm like, weird. isn't that weird? Like it just seems so strange But to we me. have the same thing and it's not like it snows here. So we have the same idea, right? And like, That's true. Sand, it was like 80 degrees on Christmas this year. So yeah. I guess we're all part of this fallacy. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. But no, it is interesting to think about. It's just different, I guess. Yeah. Of course, it's normal to them. But like, it is strange to think about going and seeing like a wintry atmosphere in July or something. Yeah. Like it soup doesn't make any sense. I would love it, though. I would love it because uh, I'm already angry about upcoming uh, hot <laughs> months. Um so, Mandy, what country has a town that gets no sunlight during the polar night? Is it Norway, Iceland, or Sweden? Iceland. Close. <laughs> Norway. Yes, there you go. Okay. You got it. And I know they have the northern lights there. Like, if I would love to I, see I love that seeing videos and stuff of that. Yeah, that looks really cool. Um, just a couple more. Let's see. Okay, you mentioned this word before, and I have a follow-up question once I ask this question. How many months does the average grizzly bear hibernate? One to three, three to five, or five to seven? Can't be five to seven. I know the, I know they're not sleeping for seven months. It is? Okay, Mandy, <laughs> what do you consider hibernation? Because maybe I'm about to confuse you too. You think they sleep for five to seven months, right? And I'm not calling you an idiot. I'm calling myself an idiot. Uh-huh. I thought they just kind of ate a lot of food and slept for months. That's what I thought. Okay, that's not it. They like do get up and go around. But like, why were we taught that? Or did we just assume as children? Hold on. I need to Google while we're here. Okay, so what is hibernation? Are you telling me I don't even know what hibernating is? (laughs) Don't feel bad. I found out like three months ago. So uh, Because growing up, I swear, you always see like when they're talking about a bear hibernating, it's always got like its own little cave where that's where it's hibernating and it's always sleeping. And it's like, oh, don't wake up this hibernating bear. I know. Uh, bears hibernate during me. winter, but they aren't sleeping the whole time. It means they don't eat or drink and rarely urinate or defecate. But they, like, still get up. They what? still move around their little den. How does it they work? S- 
How okay, does in it order work? to make it through the severe calorie deficit that occurs during hibernation, they lower their body temperature, slow down their respiration and heart rate, and break down their stored fats and proteins in their bodies. But they're just like chilling. While many people think of hibernation as a deep sleep, that's not exactly correct. In fact, bears can wake up and move around their dens during this time. I thought it was like a small coma. I thought they were in a five to seven month coma. I'm blown away. Okay. But like, I assume they don't do a lot of activity because they must have to preserve energy. So it's not like they're out like. But didn't you just think they were zonked out for that long? I I didn't think they had to go to the bathroom. I I absolutely thought they just like curled up in a little ball and just like stayed there until. Who taught us all that collectively? Because I feel (laughs) like you're not the first person. I definitely thought that. Um, So when you said hibernate earlier, I was like, well, I got one for her. I don't (laughs) know. I just learned this. And uh, I mean, it's close to what we thought, I guess. But I truly didn't think they like woke up for anything. I thought it was like the deepest sleep. Because if you like really think about like an animal literally sleeping for like five months, you're like, that actually doesn't make sense. (laughs) Sure. But (laughs) Um, Mandy, actually, I think that's a great one to end on because how can we top that Um, (laughs) or bottom that? I don't think we can. Um, (laughs) There you go. Okay. All righty. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy this first episode of the new year. If you'd like, you can join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash moms and mysteries podcast. We are going to be recording tomorrow. So by the time you listen, it'll be out. Um, all about the mother God cult docuseries that Mandy and I watched every frame of and a little more in depth into the story of the actual cult itself um, on Patreon. So if you want to listen to that, it is there. Also, if you're like, I like bonus episodes, I don't like using the Patreon app. You're not alone. And if you have Spotify, you can now actually add that to your Spotify. It makes it a lot easier. So just giving you another another option, as well as cards, stickers, magnets, all that stuff. Great way to start the new year. 2024. Excellent. All right, guys, that is it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. (laughs) 